Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 18, 23, 30, and 30 through, 7, 30 through 37. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron, but Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from, this, from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet with him, his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. 
Are not Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, it's good to be with you. I'm thankful to be with you and to study the scriptures once again. Um, if you're in person or on YouTube, thank you for joining us in worship. Uh, if you're new to North Cross, physically, virtually, I'd like to welcome you. Um, and also, if you're here again, uh, physically, virtually, we're really glad to be with you. Uh, and along those lines, I just want to say, uh, we're excited about what we do on Sundays and our worship that we get to do on Sundays. Uh, and that's actually the heart behind going back to two services. Uh, we really think what we're doing here as a community matters. And we mean this in a couple senses. I'd encourage everyone to join us in person if you can medically. It's very important. It matters for your own worship. I'd also encourage you to consider bringing a friend or family member, a neighbor or a coworker. Um, again, we think that what we're doing and what we're about and, and Jesus himself is what people are looking for um, and really whether they know it or not and wherever they are with Jesus right now. And so that's just the encouragement um, and uh, take it and consider it. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series in the life of David. A few weeks ago, we began to move past the familiar section of First and Second Samuel. Uh, that section where we, where we end with Bathsheba every time and the prophet, and then we never kind of go forward after that, in the, typically in the church. Uh, and while we Christians are not so sure where we are, while we should be very careful not to play God, and we have to be very careful not to just connect every piece of suffering to a particular sin in our lives, there is a, a lesson from David's later life that shows us how sins even forgiven sins, have consequences. That's to say that sin isn't just bad. Sin is bad for us. And that's what the life of David teaches us. But when we read passages like 2 Samuel 15, it's also important for us to keep this in mind. The hero of David's story is not David. The hero of David's story is the hero of the Bible and all of world history in this present moment. It's the perfect rescuer from all sins. Jesus. And this is why our sermon title series is called The God After Our Own Hearts. Not the man after our own hearts, the God after our own hearts. But before we step back into David's story uh, and look at how God does not give up on us, let's pray together uh, for the Spirit to use this time. Father, uh, you know where we are and we're at different places. Um, I feel like I'm at a different place even between the 8.30 service and the 10.45 service. And uh, you know that. There's not a, a word on our tongue that you didn't, um, aren't aware of, hadn't didn't have some part to play in. Um, you seek us out wherever we might go, wherever we might be, and you're with us and you're present. And we trust that. And we trust that you'd use your word by your spirit and that you would change our lives by it. Would you, Jesus, be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts as a result of studying passages like this? 
set so many thousands of years ago, but still so relevant to our hearts and minds today. Would you teach us, give us humble hearts, help us to sit crisscross applesauce in your presence, I pray. In your name, Jesus, amen. So towards the end of a a children's book that is a Druin family favorite called Tales of the Kingdom, uh, there's a tale called Princess Amanda and the Dragon. I don't know if we're familiar with this. Uh, In this story, Princess Amanda discovers two bronze glowing dragon eggs, uh, but instead of turning them over like she's supposed to, to the realm's king and caretaker, she hides them in her very own place. Princess Amanda hid the dragon eggs because she knew it was wrong to take the dragon eggs in the first place. In fact, there's a law with a sign that says it is forbidden to keep dragon eggs. And so in this law against keeping dragon's eggs, it existed because these beautiful bronze eggshells turn into cute and precious dragonettes. But within six months, these dragons are fully grown. And with a mouth that breathes fire and a tail that thrashes wildly and a cunning mind that cannot be controlled. But whether she meant to and forgot or whether she just thought these eggs aren't the real deal and they're old and shriveled inside, Princess Amanda does not hand over the bronze dragon eggs to the caretaker. And soon one of the eggs hatches. And Amanda Amanda immediately says to herself, I must take you to the caretaker. He will know what to do with surprise hatchlings. But then she looks into the baby dragon's eyes and feels its tears on her skin. And she thinks, I know this is forbidden, but I'm gonna keep it as a pet. And she says this, just for a little while, perhaps I can tame it. And so the dragon grows up and Amanda grows up, more and more attached to it. She feeds it, she plays games with it, she rides on its back when it's fully grown and flying around this way and that. And because her pet hated to be left by itself, Amanda starts losing practice. She, start, she practices her job in the great park less and less. She laughs less and less. She, do, she stops joining the great celebration and her spiritual community more and more. In fact, those people become ugly and annoying and foolish to her. But soon the no longer little dragon starts to scorch up the inside of Amanda's very own special place and directly disobey her by swinging its tail wildly and shooting flames at her. And Amanda can feel herself losing control. Great harm could be done from one small tame dragon. Small tame things grow into big wild beasts. And she knows this, and she knows she must get rid of the dragon, and so she abandons it deep in the forest one night. But between its fiery breath and its great beating wings, all of a sudden, she wakes up to the smell of a giant fire. And so Princess Amanda marches into the woods one more time, rises up to her full height, and her most majestic voice says, dragon, you must go. Grown dragons are not allowed in the great park. Fly away. But the dragon just leers at her and shoots flame right at her. And so... A fit of terror consumes Amanda and she starts to stamp and and slap wildly with her hands at these fires that kind of go from mini fires to one big blazing wildfire all around her. And she realizes that one small princess cannot put out all the fires of this one large dragon starts. 
I'm going to stop there in the story. I know right at the part where we're all wondering what's going to happen. Uh, and I want to do that because I want, it's worth mentioning that the authors of the Tales of the Kingdom, the mains are Christian, and they mean for us to understand this story from a Christian point of view. And it really is trying to communicate something important to children of all ages. That's this. Sin is like that dragon. Sin is like that dragon. Right? Putting yourself first begins shiny and precious and oh so controllable, but then it starts a wildfire. We don't have to try hard to imagine the blazing, scorching injustice of sin explodes into. I mean, we've seen the images and the videos and we've heard the stories even in 2021. So far, there have been 40,090 wildfires that have burned 3,893,239 acres of forest land in the U.S. alone. Then we've also seen parallel images, right? Parallel images online or videos or stories about societal injustice. Human bodies beaten and killed, possessions stolen and destroyed, poverty and hunger. And this image of a raging wildfire of sin is also fits nicely into our passage this morning. Second Samuel chapter 15 starts with an intimate, seemingly contained family story, a father and his sons and their sins, but only, the, only to explode outward, right? The, the fire jumps the royal palace line and roars outward to overcome all of ancient Israel into a rebellion and then a civil war. And the question for us becomes, how do we confront the injustices and the sin in our own lives, in our own world? Do we avoid sin's heat and wish it away? You know, not in my life, that's a you problem. Or do we tend to try and beat the heat down? I've got this, I can tame the beast. But what do we do when neither of those sin strategies work? Neither David's sin strategy nor Absalom's sin strategy. What do we do when they don't actually work? Our passage this morning lays out David's sin and injustice, the action, and then Absalom's sinful and unjust counter-reaction. And Absalom's counter-reaction causes David, in turn, to come to the end of himself and to turn to God. And so, in a sentence, David confronts sin and the injustices uh, with honest grief and asking for help. And so should we. We need to confront sin and its injustices with honest grief and asking for help. We see this story sequence of action, reaction, and self-surrender in three stages. First, the action, verses 1 through 12, David, we see in him how not to confront the injustices of sin with despair and distance. Second, in Absalom, in the same verses, verses one through 12, we see the reaction. How not, again, to confront sin and its injustices with pride and with over-pursuit. But third and finally, in verses 13 to the end of the chapter, we do start to see how to confront the injustices of sin. And we see it in David's story with his awareness and his asking for help. So where we're going, those are three points. Those are verses that will correspond to them. They're in your outline, uh, projected behind me or in your e-bulletin. Let's begin with verses one through 12. And let's see the sort of David, King David, how not to, right? How do we not confront 
sin, okay? Which is, his answer is, don't confront it at all. So we'll see that in this passage. In verses one through six, if you look with me there, Absalom is playing king and he's playing judge, right? And what one commentator calls a pomp, the pomp of megalomania, I like that. Absalom buys himself a tricked out chariot, right? It's got all of the gold and the silver and the lapis lazuli, and he gets all these horses in direct contradiction of Deuteronomy chapter 17, and he hires out 50 runners. These are 50 people, 50 men that are designed to, sh to run in front of his chariot and shout aloud his praises, as well as to act as a bodyguard if anyone gives him a tough time. But Absalom matches his pretend to be uh, appearances with pretend to be king actions. Verse two tells us Absalom shows up at the time and at the place uh, of king's judicial, the king's judicial court. Early in the morning at the city gate, Absalom appears and he meets the people who are wanting justice, right? And he promises to give it to them single-handedly. Listen to what he says, verses three through four. See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Oh, that I were king and judge in this land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give them justice. And you know, Absalom begins and finishes this proclamation, this promise of justice for all with these gestures of love, right? He asks after the plaintiffs when they, when they come to him, he says, now where are you from? Oh, that tribe, I love that tribe. Oh, I know, do you know so-and-so? And then with that, the Israelites uh, would try to bow to the, to the prince afterwards. And Absalom would grab them up, he'd take hold of them, he'd lift them to their feet, and he'd kiss them. He would say, essentially, no, no, stand up. We're all equals here. I get you. I get you. And here we need to ask, surely the reigning King David heard about this, right? It was happening right under his nose, in the royal city, in the royal court. Did he just like not want to know? Was he just trying to bury what Absalom was doing, leaving this information deep in the forest of his own heart, not unlike Princess Amanda with the dragon? Well, after four years of stealing the hearts of the men of Israel, verses seven through 12 tell us that Absalom moves his kingship from pretend to reality, and Absalom finagles David's all too willing request, permission to go to Hebron. After two years, by the way, he goes to Hebron, David's first royal city, the place of David's original coronation. This is the family tribe's HQ. And your, th your hearts are crying out, really, David? Hello, wake up. Something is happening, do something. And then and there, at Hebron, Absalom throws himself a hundred, hundred strong, surprise, I'm the real king, celebration, right? And all of a sudden, all these people flood in and the symbolism of the king-making city in the four years of Absalom's politicking in Jerusalem take effect and these guests are overwhelmed into co-conspirators. And verse 12 tells us that even Ahithophel, Ahithophel is David's wisest counselor. He joins the rebellion. This would be like you're playing pickup soccer and Lionel Messi shows up as a ringer. This would be like UNCC getting Nick Saban to coach this season. This would be like 
um, getting the local Lake Norman YMCA, getting Simone Biles pre-twisties. This is a big deal. This is a person that has a lot to offer. And Absalom's momentum was huge is what this passage is saying. Is it Absalom was that great or was it? If you do the family math, Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And that means that maybe his vote for Absalom was actually more of a protest vote against David. But we have to ask why is Absalom taking and then playing and then taking the kingship from David? What is he after? And our answer has to look backwards. There has been a pattern of David's passive avoidance of Absalom and his sins. Two weeks ago, we looked at that disturbing passage in 2 Samuel 13, where David's son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar, only to be murdered by Absalom in cold blood. And we noticed that David did nothing to, to punish Amnon. And when Absalom kills his own brother, David does nothing again. And in fact, Absalom is the one who does something. He puts himself in a three-year self-imposed exile. 2 Samuel 13, verse 39 tells us, though, that the spirit of the king David longed to go out to Absalom, but David did nothing about that fatherly urge. In fact, Joab has to force David to deal with his problems, to deal with the Absalom problem. And David's solution is to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem, but he tells Joab, let him dwell apart in his own home. He is not to come into my presence for two full years. Absalom has to set Joab's barley field afire in order to be acknowledged by his own father, David, to even be seen and recognized by him. And so from this backstory of David's inaction in chapter, and also his inactions in chapter 15, we get a picture of what Dan Allender calls parenting at its worst. This is parenting at its worst. You see, every child, everyone in this room grew up asking two questions. And a lot of us in this room who have children, our children are asking these two questions all of the time. Do you love me? Do you love me? And can I get my way all the time? Can I get my way all the time? The best parents show and tell their children, yes, I love you no matter what, but no, you can't have your way all the time. And this gives that child this sort of unconditional security and this purpose to do good in the world. Average parents, especially in our cultural moment, show and tell their children, yes, I love you no matter what. And okay, do whatever you want. And this child has this incredibly secure connection, but that child has no purpose. He's self-absorbed. He's spoiled. He misses the boat on the whole. It's more blessed to give than receive notice. On the opposite side of average, there are parents who show and tell their children, no, I don't love you no matter what. And no, you cannot have your way all the time. And that child has a purpose to do good, but grows up feeling disconnected and lonely. And finally, there's the worst kind of parent, what King David is to Absalom. No, I don't love you no matter what. Get out of my presence. I don't even want to see you. And yeah, yeah, do whatever you want. Murder, steal, just don't bother me. David doesn't show Absalom a lack of love. David refuses Absalom 
any love. What the rabbi David Wolpe describes as the monstrous self-constraint of a man whose heart is unavailable to himself and therefore to his child. But as you can imagine, as you're thinking about your own parents, you're thinking about your own parenting, as you can imagine um, that worst case scenario of no love and no limits deeply wounds Absalom. And it fuels an almost narcissistic combination of cold hearted cleverness with murderous rage. David's despair and distancing triggers Absalom and he triggers him in an almost prideful over pursuit. And we set in our second point. Absalom reacts to David's underfunctioning as king with his own overfunctioning. The more David retreats from his job and responsibilities, the more Absalom steps in and takes on responsibilities that are not his, like being king. And also, he literally pursues David's very life. And so begins that kind of classic vicious cycle that we've all experienced in our own relationships, right? I want you to think about this for a minute. A friend stops texting you and you think to yourself, the way I'm gonna get this person to respond is by texting them 20 times in a row and then calling them five. But does that do? Nagging a person only drives them farther away. Or our child or spouse is in trouble and we take on the responsibility for their problems and emotions. Or maybe vice versa. I demand that someone own and operate my heart for me. It's a cycle because each person feeds the other. Rescuers like rescuing, victims like being rescued. And so they find each other, they marry each other oftentimes, and then they enable each other. And so if I do my child's homework for her every night, she will never learn how to learn. And everyone's happy until I can't show up to do her homework for her, or she actually wants to learn how to learn. And if I demand my spouse to take away my pain, I'll never know how to deal with negative emotions like fear and anger and jealousy, but he or she will feel so very needed. And in verses one through 12, Absalom is overplaying this rescuer role in par excellence. And his pride, we hear him say, oh, that I were judge and root the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I will give him justice. To give him some credit, Absalom saw this kind of power vacuum. He saw the passive failures of David to be a good dad. He saw the passive failures of David to be a good king. I mean, David didn't point enough judges to hear all the cases. David didn't personally show up to hear the cases that were specially referred to him by the tribal elders. But Absalom's response to justice delayed or justice completely miscarried is an overcorrection. Unlike his father with Saul, a much worse king, Absalom has no problem leading a revolt and putting his hand against the Lord's anointed king. And so many of us are falling into these two well-worn paths culturally right now, societally right now. Uh, some of us are like Absalom, right? We could find ourselves falling into this prideful trap. I can be this way. You know what I mean? Like this last couple of weeks, I have been wrestling out loud in private, saying to myself, I should be the head of the CDC. I'd fix this pandemic. Or how about like the economic, racial, and political inequalities while maintaining an active online shopping network? Oh, no problem, I got this. It's amazing how I can feel so right. I can be such an armchair quarterback of the world. 
you know, it's, it's so easy to see what happened and what went wrong after the fact. It's so easy for me to imagine that you or I could fix the church or fix the government and when we don't have several 300-pound problems chasing us down to tackle us for a loss. But I want to be clear, I don't think the solution that David offers is a much better solution. Some of us, me, many times, we're not doing anything about social or political injustices, and that's not good either. We need to use our voices and our jobs and our free time to change society for the better. But here's my advice, aim small, (laughs) aim small. If running a church during COVID-19 has taught me anything, it's that I need to be honest about my own pride. My own desire to be this big rescuer like Absalom or Amanda with the dragon. I think the rules cannot apply to me. I think I'm the exception to the rule. Perhaps I can tame sin. Perhaps I can stamp out and pat down the unjust wildfires with my little foot or my burnt hands. But like Princess Amanda, we need the awareness to say, one small princess cannot put out all the fires this large dragon starts. Like Amanda does in the rest of her story, we need to be willing to cry out, oh, help caretaker, caretaker, I am too small for this terrible dragon. Help. Or in the words of John the Baptist, we need to confess, I am not the Christ. And behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And likewise, we see this humble awareness and willingness to cry out for help in David when he's finally forced to confront his own sin in Absalom and verses 13 and following, our third and final point. In verses 13 through 17, we see and hear David shake himself out of his slumber. He's been paralyzed for years. He's been closing his eyes to his own family and to his own nation. But when a messenger reports the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom, all of a sudden, David sees himself and he sees his circumstances for what they really are. And he sees it accurately, he takes command. He tells his servants, arise, let us flee or else there'll be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, let us, let it, let, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword, verse 14. So in two sentences, David communicates a plan, flee Jerusalem and fast, and he communicates a reason to save our lives and to save the city from siege. So the king went out and all his household after him, verse 16. But David's clear awareness of the situation's threat shifts to a clear awareness of the situation's tragedy, doesn't it? We see this shift in him lingering there, longingly at that last house on the very edge of Jerusalem in verse 17, as well as the scenes of David and all the people with him weeping out loud when he's crossing with covered head or bare feet, stumbling downhill towards the brook of Kidron or uphill onto the Mount of Olives. But verse 31 shows us how easily David's willingness to grieve turns to God. In verse 31, we watch David receive more terrible news. The LeBron James of counselors, Ahithophel, has joined the other side. And then and there, David just stops and he asks for help. He prays to God briefly, intensely, and we can imagine frequently, O Lord, please turn the counsels of Ahithophel into foolishness. 
It's Princess Amanda crying out, oh, help. Caretaker, caretaker, I am too small for this terrible dragon. Help. Briefly, intensely, frequently asking for God's help frees us. Do you see that? It frees us from so many of sin's wildfires. Those terrible out of control situations, those vicious cycles in our relationships. This is because God became a man to pursue those who distance themselves in despair. He catches us up with his outstretched arms of mercy and there are tears in his eyes, just like David's. He cried on the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he cried at the city walls right next to the Brook of Kidron. And Jesus, God died on the cross to prove he cares more about justice than we do. There, Jesus rescued victims of, self, of, the, their, victims of their own self-righteous fight against sin. The virtue signalers, us. In Jesus's righteousness, God proved his power to say no, you cannot have your own way. But yes, there is a better way. My unconditional love that even death can't touch. And as we see David take hold of this God-given security and purpose, and we see it when he answers, God answers David's prayer in verse 32, and he answers it with two feet, a torn coat, and dirty hair. Hushai, another counselor of David, comes out of nowhere, joins David in his flight, but David says, hey, I don't need you to weep with me. Go back to the city, and here's a plan. And by the way, I've already installed a team of counter-terrorist spy soldiers. Verse 34, then you will defeat Ahithophel for me, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel and Absalom, which is what happens in later chapters. Verses 33 through 37 are this kind of concrete example of what I've been talking about earlier about aiming small. Mark Boda means this as in his meditation quote in your bulletin. He talks about being a catalyst for justice. What does that mean? Together, Christians, the church, we are to meet individual needs around us. Look for the individual who needs food and shelter and counsel and protection. But we also use our votes, our protest, and we advocate where we lead at home and in work and in the local community against systems of injustice. Like David with Hushai and the sons of the priests, we take on the oppressive Absaloms of the world. In Tales of the Kingdom, Princess Amanda calls for her caretaker and king, and with his help, she slays her dragon. But the wildfire caused by that dragon's sin blazes on. And so, like God with his church, the king caretaker calls on his team of rangers with a crowy, 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 and together with cries of, to the king, to the kingdom. Caretaker and the rangers join Jesus, like Jesus and his church, and they take on and fight hard against the flames of sin. And that's what we're doing right here, right now in our lives. And this hard work is full. It is full of minor victories and major defeats. It's full of fears and fatigue and despair, but also of joy and peace and love. And it only ends in the story, Tales of the Kingdom, in our story with a thunder and a God-sent rain. So the raging fire in the forest was quenched by a greater power. 
For there are some things that cannot be moved, that cannot be shaken, that are beyond burning. And so we wait and we work. And we pray for the power that cannot be shaken. Or in the words of John the Apostle, we cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. Would you pray with me again? Father, thank you for these words to us. Thank you for the opportunities to press them to our hearts and lives. Would you help us not to forget them? Put them in the forefront, separate out the wheat from the chaff, but Lord, we pray that you would teach us how to live them and believe them. These words to us in your precious scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.